So that announcement was without uh, verbiage. But RC has a table. Raylan's running it with Clem after service. They got a... <laughs> Calvin got cold. He's rocking a hoodie. You can model it right there. Right? They got those for sale. Uh, new shirts. Maybe you got one before. They got new stuff for you. But uh, that goes straight to them going to camp. They go every year. So that's the, the purpose behind that. They're going to camp this summer. The money raised from those shirts is going to help them get to camp where lives are transformed every single year. Uh, we used to go up there. The Lees used to go up there when we were <laughs> pouring into the youth. People ask me if I miss it. I'm like, a little bit, a little bit, but I like my sleep, so. <laughs> That's when you know you're no longer in CYP. I was having a conversation with somebody this week where it was like when you're with a bunch of people and it's like 11 o'clock and they're like, what are we doing next? And you're like, I'm going to sleep. That's when you know you graduated from CYP. Thanks, man. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Check, check. We good. But just to get the ball rolling tonight, uh, this Saturday night as we're here together, um, let me just ask a very simple question. When, when you hear the name Jesus, you hear the word Jesus, what do you think of? Right? It could be a noun, verb, adjective. I'm not being picky. It's not family feud. There's not going to be a big red X if, you don't, if it's not like top whatever. Um, what are some words you think of? Grace. Go ahead, Mike. God. The cross. Hope. Love. The Bible. Forgiveness. Savior. Oh, look at that. Co-signed each other. <laughs> Those are all, sorry, heaven, right? Friend, king, priest, healer, dead, yeah, freedom. All good answers, right? All good answers. None of you said misogynist, bigot, racist, intolerant, prejudiced. Because that's not what we think of when we think of Jesus, right? But I wanted to preface the passage tonight with that because I want to turn to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Another passage where you read it and you're just kind of left thinking, wait, what? So Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. We can all turn there, but I'll start in verse 24, it says, Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. She was a Gentile, born in Syrian Phoenicia. Jesus told her, First I should feed the children my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. While we dig in tonight, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every time we open your word, it's an opportunity for you to speak to us. Every time we open your word, it's opening a door for us to have an encounter with you. So I pray that tonight your Holy Spirit would use this text to speak to every one of us, maybe every one of us in a different way. But I pray that tonight we would all go home with fresh revelation about who you are, who we are to you, and God, what you're calling us to do when we leave this place tonight. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so Caitlin made mention of it during announcements, but 
early tomorrow morning, our team of 10 people were flying out to the Dominican Republic and we'll be landing in Santo Domingo and then we'll be driving up to the hills where La Guasara is. We'll probably get there when it's dark Sunday night and then we'll wake up Monday morning and you walk out of that building where you sleep and it is the most beautiful panorama. These hills and mountains that surround this little village that's nestled up in those hills of a couple hundred people that call it home. I don't know exactly, but we've been in a 10-year agreement through an organization called Food for the Hungry there. And Food for the Hungry is helping us resource that community. They have the conversations with the community about what's needed. And so over the past, man, I should know, but it's like six or seven years, we've built a couple dozen latrines on homes. We've built a water filtration system. We're working on an irrigation system because these are farmers that work the land who hike four hours up this hill slash mountain just to get to where they're tending their crops. So the irrigation system is going to be huge, but I also got to update that we as a church have now eclipsed 150 kids sponsored uh, in La Guasara alone and, and the surrounding area. And uh, Steph and I, we've sponsored the same child the entire time because we got him when he was young. His name is Ruben. And what's cool about these trips is you'll, you'll go to the village and then you get to meet the child you sponsored. You meet their family. Uh, you, you see where they live. You get to talk about, you know, all kinds of things. And I remember Steph and I were sitting on his, I guess you'd call it stoop. And uh, we were talking to him for the first time, and, and I don't remember who asked the question, but we asked him, hey, what's your favorite animal? Because they're farmers. They got all kinds of animals. And, and I love, I'll never forget his answer. It was a pig because you get to play with it, and then you get to eat it, right? <laughs> Their relationship with animals are a little bit different there, right? It's not so much like a loving pet as much as it's a resource, right? And he's like, I get to play with it, but then you get that bacon, right? <laughs> They have a different relationship with animals there. For instance, like, they, they set up a, a pop-up tent and, like, some tables for us. That's where we do our devos. That's where we meet up, huddle up. It's where we eat. I can remember we were eating lunch once as a team. We're all around this table, the food's coming out, and a little puppy comes up. I'm not an animal person, but it was a cute puppy, right? And there were a couple people, dog people there, and they're ready to pet this puppy. And the, the FH leader was there and was like, yeah. Dogs got fleas, you know, they don't want to be touching the dog, so they didn't. And then the owner of that home comes out, and to put it kindly, chased the dog away like a soccer ball, <laughs> right, with their foot. You know, like, that. most dogs there, they're not the, the kind of domesticated pets. They're just running the streets. And I share that because when we read this text tonight, in Jesus' day, in that agricultural Palestinian setting, that was a lot more like, Laguasara than our culture where we think of a dog, we think of the dog that sits on our couch with us, or, or we, we treat like one of our children, right? It was different. So we've got here in Mark 7, this woman comes to Jesus begging for him to heal her daughter, and Jesus' words, his reply is, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. It's as if he was ready to chase her away with his foot, right? Get lost, it seems to imply. Right? And this should make me say, it makes me say when I read it, time out. Like, who is this man in the Jesus suit, and what did he do with gentle Jesus, meek and mild? What did he do with the Jesus I grew up knowing, and why is he talking like this? We should ask, wait, what? Right? Because we've, this whole series, we've been going through Mark, looking at moments that make us pause and say, wait, what? And we've made mention of this uh, commencement speech from 2016 at Harvard by the dean of education that sparked a New York Times bestseller called, wait, what? Because in that book, he talks about how this question is actually a very effective way of asking for clarification. 
It's that the root of understanding is what he talked about. Because it pays off in life to slow down and make sure you understand what's happening. How much more so when we're reading through the word of God. Right? These moments in scripture that make us scratch our head, that make us think, wait, what? They're not meant to just be pushed to the side so we can finish our reading plan for the day or come back to later. They're often invitations that we have to dive deep and begin to understand in a greater way who Jesus was, why he came, and what it means for us. I think just so often we fail to RSVP to the invitation. So in this series, we've called time out on some of these moments in the fast break gospel, Mark, where immediately things just keep happening. He uses the word immediately again and again. It's a no huddle gospel where there's just action and more action. But there's moments where you say, wait, what? In this series, we've looked at where the disciples are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, right? They're, they're rowing, and in the middle of the night, it says they're struggling. And so Jesus starts walking on water, and as he gets out to them as they're struggling, it says he's going to pass them by. We think, wait, what? Talked about how Jesus was healing a blind man, and his method was spitting in his face. And it didn't work the first time, and that's like a double wait, what? Like, what is happening? Last week, we talked about how he comes upon a fig tree as he's walking to the temple that didn't have figs on it, didn't have a harvest. So rather than, you know, miraculously speaking life into this tree so it could produce figs, he cursed it, talked to it, and told it to die. All these different passages, we're like, wait, what is going on that we've dug into over the past month or so? But tonight, we got this woman coming to Jesus, desperately seeking healing for her daughter. And so I, I kind of had this on the calendar as the, the last sermon of the series. Usually when I'm planning the sermon calendar, I try to leave just a buffer because we always plan for the Holy Spirit to change things up, right? I know that God might speak something to me where, you know, I need a free week here or there. Or even when we do uh, plan the services, we're planning for, hey, if, if the Holy Spirit takes us a whole different direction, right, we're, we're taking this plan and burning it, right? So... I know when I plan sermon series that maybe that last week something might happen. So this one might have been left on the cutting floor, and that was kind of intentional because this is a rough passage. I don't just scratch my head when I read this passage. I kind of cringe, right? You wince because these are harsh words. It's not funny ha-ha, like, like Jesus talking to a tree. It's borderline offensive, or it seems that way. Right? When you read it, it seems prejudice and even sexist, right? This woman comes to the table seeking healing for her daughter, this table of probably mostly men, and Jesus hits her with this clap back, right, and, and seemingly wants to send her away. It seems prejudiced and racist, right? Jews saw Gentiles as fundamentally unclean, not based on anything they'd done, but based on who they were, based on their, their very DNA. They considered them unclean in nature. And it seems like Jesus wants no part of her company for this reason, like she is a puppy covered in fleas coming to the table when he's trying to eat. And so it's as if he wants to make this clear to her. He calls her one, right? Called a, a female dog in English, that's not a good word, right? It's troubling. And we'll get to that. But you know, in a small way, I, I find this passage reassuring. Maybe you're thinking, what are you even talking about? It kind of makes me all the more confident that the gospel accounts are true, right? Because some people would tell you that the disciples crafted these gospels so that we would, we would rush to worship Jesus as this, this, this is God-made man that was perfect and worthy of our worship and adoration. And yet we've got this passage. Like, think about the disciples and the apostles, like, on Peter's apartment floor with a whiteboard, and they're trying to figure out what stories they're going to put into the gospels so people will admire and rush to worship Jesus. And they got some stories up there, and, and Mark speaks up. Like, hey, guys, 
What about this? Remember in the Old Testament where Elijah goes to Tyre and meets the widow, right? And over time, he even brings her son back to life, right? Let's do this with Jesus. But he goes to Tyre, but when the woman comes to him, right, like he, he just fusses her off, calls her a dog, and lets her daughter keep suffering. Right? What about that? Let's talk. You want to talk that out? No? Right? Like if they were putting together stories that were trying to get us to, to worship Jesus and elevate him to this place of adoration, nobody in their right minds would have included this story. Right? That's the reason I find this reassuring because to me there's only one reason for it being included in the Gospels, and that's that it happened. But then you're like, okay, if it happened, the massive question remains, why? Right? Why, why did this happen? Why did Jesus say this? Why the psychological jab, right, the verbal jab that had this thing in the moment. And many wrestling with this passage and Christ's behavior and seeming lack of chivalry within it will try to either lessen the sting or, or make excuses for it. And what do I mean? Well, some would say that Jesus, right, he was fully human. This was a moment of weakness in his flesh. The week he had just had, he just got rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. His, his friend, relative, John the Baptist, had died. And so he, this, he's caught with this compassion down, right? He's human. But I'd argue that this isn't human. This is less than human. Like, this is degrading, right? He's treating another human, like, as less than human, assaulting their dignity. Like, that's borderline simple, right? Jesus doing this. Some would say Jesus in his humanity was recognizing the scope of his mission, Right, that it was going to reach the Gentiles as well, that this was Jesus maturing in his mission, but Jesus had already crossed the border into Gentile territory and interacted with Gentiles and shown zero pause about that. Others would say it was a test. He was testing this woman's faith, but Jesus makes no mention of a test. And when he commends her in this passage in the Greek, he doesn't commend her faith. He actually commends her reasoning. And what happened if she wouldn't have had the faith? In Mark 9, the father doesn't have enough faith, and yet Jesus heals the son anyways. And then others still, they'll sugarcoat it, right? Try to remove a bit of this thing. You dig deep into the Greek, and uh, Jesus uses the diminutive form of dog, little dog. So it doesn't speak to a street dog necessarily, but it speaks to a dog that's kept in the home. So that's a little reassuring, right? Mildly reassuring. But if I come to you for help... And you say no and then call me a dog, don't really make it better if I'm a golden retriever, right? Like, st you still insulted my dignity and humanity, right? So we can make excuses or try to uh, explain away the sting and try to explain why Jesus acts this way. But when you read the Gospels, you read them through, you realize there are moments where, where Jesus is deliberately shocking, like deliberately, like, scandalous. You... He calls the religious leaders whitewashed tombs, <laughs> a brood of vipers among an, another list of things. And when he does this, he has these moments, he does them for a reason. So then we come to the question again, why? <laughs> and Mark gives us a clue in the way he writes the passage. He says of this woman, she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia. It's a literary two-step progression where Mark's using it to get the reader to notice something. The second element, the second detail typically contains a crucial Element. So the wrinkle in this story is she's from a region in the Old Testament that the prophets painted as a wealthy, godless oppressor of Israel, Syrian Phoenicia. 
When he mentions it here, it's a fancy way of saying that she's a resident of Tyre where Jesus runs into her. And this city has a, a lengthy history in the Bible, and it's not one that's very enviable. Like in Isaiah, what is it, 23? It's a chapter that's dedicated to Tyre's downfall. You go to Ezekiel, there's three chapters. Ezekiel 26 through 28, complete with God saying, I am your enemy, O Tyre. And then at the end, to cap it all off, there's a funeral song dedicated to their city. <laughs> like when Jesus, or when God writes your funeral song in advance, that's talking some serious trash. <laughs> so why would he do this? You read in Amos chapter 1, verse 9, it says, The people of Tyre have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They broke their treaty of brotherhood with Israel, selling whole villages as slaves to Edom. They had a troubled history. There's more verses I could uh, dive into from the Old Testament that point to their wrongdoing and their persistent sin and the way they wronged God's people. But you look at Jesus' time, right? When Jesus was in this village, what was happening then? You know, as this woman referenced breadcrumbs with Jesus, Tyre was taking bread from the table of Jesus' hometown in Galilee. In Acts 12, it speaks to how Tyre was reliant on the region for its food supply. And we know based on history that those who grew the food in Galilee often went hungry because of it. It's for these reasons that Josephus, the famous historical Jewish historian, spoke of the people of Tyre as, quote, our bitterest enemies. So what does all this mean about this woman? When she approaches Jesus, she's a privileged member of a hated class of people. It's as if she pulls up and steps out of like her new Mercedes and walks up to this wandering Galilean and asks for help, asks for a favor. And we don't know her age, right? She's a mother. She might not be a, quote, rich young ruler, but she, we call her a middle-aged mom of good means, right? We want to give her a, a title. And just as Jesus was deliberately shocking in his conversation with the rich young ruler, telling him to go and sell every dime of what he had, and give it to the poor. I believe Jesus was being deliberately shocking here. And to remove the sting or to lessen the scandal is to miss the moment. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about the stumbling block that was laid before this rich young ruler. Again, Jesus was all but being deliberately shocking when he says, look, sell every dime of what you have, every last bit of your possessions, give it to the poor, and then follow me. You know, we talked about how that's not a universal command for all of us to go home and empty our bank accounts. But it is a command to empty our hearts and the throne of our heart from anything that isn't Jesus, anything that isn't God. Jesus knows when he asked this rich young ruler to do this, that wealth ruled his heart. You know, we talked about how we best pay attention to the rich young ruler. And I would say we best pay attention to this story tonight because in the global economy, in the global setup, we're in the upper echelon. Of wealth. And maybe you say, talk for your, speak for yourself. But if you drove here in a car, you're likely, conservatively speaking, in like the top 10% of global wealth. Most of us got other cars in the driveway at home, right? We're, we're blessed. We're blessed. You know, sometimes what's scary is this accumulation of assets gives us a God complex, right? Where the security of a bank account, knowing we got retirement all dialed in, knowing that we've got everything we need, it feels like we've earned our sense of security. And the narrative that we buy into that's so prevalent in our culture is I'm tapping into my, my goodness. I'm tapping into my potential through freedom and willpower. And I'm a self-made man or I'm a self-made woman. I'm master of my fate and captain of my soul. It's the chorus of the American dream. And you read the Bible, there's nothing wrong with ambition, right? It speaks of selfish ambition that's problematic. But when we hear this chorus 
again and again on repeat what ends up happening is we got this pride. And what's dangerous about pride is in our pride, we don't see our pride. And what happens with our pride is it tells us that, that we did this. We earned this, right? It prevents us from receiving the kingdom as little children, as Jesus said we should. Let alone a, a little dog, right? But this middle-aged mom of good means humbly does just that. And her words with Jesus, they don't just contain wit and they don't just contain humility. But her words and the, the conversation that Jesus and her have, it has theological insight. Because Israel were, Israel was the children of God. The children of Abraham, God's chosen covenant people. Israel had precedence over the Gentiles historically, which is what Jesus was speaking to in his analogy. Paul actually affirms this multiple times in Romans, but most famously in his famous words in Romans 1.16, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone that believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Yet rather than being offended as a Gentile, this woman is the first person we see engage Jesus with a constructive exchange about what his mission is and ultimately about the good news. You know, I think it's part of the good news that we often miss, even though we've got all of Jesus's ministry in the Gospels. We've got all of the commentary of the epistles in the New Testament about Jesus's ministry. And yet she sees with clarity in the moment a part of the, the gospel and the good news that we so often miss. What am I talking about? Well, it's the bad news that precedes the good news. You know, I think that Jesus is deliberately shocking with people because he's prepping their heart. Right? It's like an appetizer for the shock and, and, and sometimes scandal that comes with the good news. Sometimes the very starting block for the good news is a stumbling block for people. What's this stumbling block? It's that we're broken. You're broken. I'm broken. It's the most Man, readily verifiable, yet quickly denied reality. Like, watch the news. Like, the news last week with what was happening in Virginia Beach. What I was just thinking in my head was this quote by Malcolm Muggridge. Sorry, it's right there already. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. We resist it. This reality that we're broken. Right? That's not the course of our culture. Right? The reality that our righteousness the best we have to offer is, as Isaiah said, but filthy rags. That we don't deserve a crumb from the table of a holy God. And you know what keeps us from fully embracing the good news is the fact that the bad news is so bad. And it's not about somebody over there. It's about me. It's about us. We struggle to accept the fact that we could be unacceptable before God. Right? And it comes off as scandalous, right? appalling, downright revolting. Right? If you've subscribed to what we talk about in our culture. Like being called a dog. You know, we like to take our, our notes from Nike commercials. Just do it, right? You're self-sufficient. You're good. You dream it. You achieve it. And again, there's nothing wrong with ambition. But our reality spiritually is a lot more like the old Life Alert commercials, right? I've fallen and I can't get up. That's our reality spiritually. And the stumbling block is this. If, if we don't believe the bad news in its fullness, then we'll never truly believe the good news, that Jesus didn't come to reward the deserving. He came to reach the needy and the lost. You know, you, re you read through Romans, you keep reading after Romans 1.16 and Romans 3.23, there's all have sinned and fallen short. We are that needy person that's fallen on the floor. We've fallen short. We cannot get up. Romans 6.23, it gets worse. The bad news gets worse. The wages of sin, 
is death. But it says in Romans 5, 8, man, it's probably one of my favorite verses in Scripture. While we were still sinners, right, on the floor, dogs spiritually, Jesus came and died for us. Speaking to God's love. Jesus didn't come to reward the deserving, those that have earned it. He came to rescue the needy, those that have fallen and couldn't get up spiritually. And until you understand the depths of our brokenness and depravity, you can't fully grasp the glory and the goodness of God's grace that sparks our worship and our praise and the way we transform in our lives. You know, if we're not admitting to ourselves daily that we're in desperate need for the grace of God, the alternative is we'll give ourselves to the work of convincing ourselves that we're okay. So then when God reminds us of broken parts of our life that need healing, Yes, there's, there's so much grace that's given to us, but we're, I'm being sanctified daily. I'm not going to be fully healed until I'm in heaven. And when God comes to me and lays his finger on those things, like, this is, this is broken. This needs healing. When we've convinced ourselves that we're okay with that chorus, we flinch, right? Pride kicks in, keeping us from the source of our help. Dwight Moody, this theologian, once said that Jesus sent no one away empty except those that were full of themselves. You know, just chapters before this, again, many people think, looking at the narrative, this same week, Jesus was in Nazareth, right, his hometown. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see how Jesus was worth their honor because they'd grown up with him. They couldn't humble themselves and honor him in that way. So the Bible says that there was no big move of God there. And so it's, it's after that that we're seeing here in this passage, he left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre where like most Jews wouldn't even go. They'd go around where the, the, the Gentiles were. The people they despised, they looked down on, the, the us over there. And that's where this woman humbles herself and we see a, a miracle, a move of God. And this isn't the way that it was supposed to play out, right? First the Jews, then the Gentiles. But Jesus in the midst of Gentile territory, speaking to somebody the Jews would have reviled, sparks a miracle. Again, the Israelites, scripturally speaking, historically speaking, they were the insiders, right? They were the people of God, the fruit of Abraham's covenant. They were the keepers of the Old Testament prophecies. And they were the insiders to the Gentiles outsiders, right? But this miracle shows that the time was coming when the Gentiles, those deemed unclean, those deemed the enemy, those deemed dogs by so-called insiders, they too would be invited in. You know, in 1655, there was a missionary, uh, Morgan Godwin. And he came to Virginia, right, not far from here, to begin doing mission work among slaves. And you could probably guess the, the reply from the slave owners was less than cordial. Right? Why are you trying to reach these slaves with the gospel? One was quoted as saying, what, such as they? What, those black dogs be made Christians? What, shall they be like us? That quote should make us flinch because it's, it's loaded, right? Such as they, right? Us and them. A line drawn by generations of what was just broken theology, misapplied scripture from the curse of Ham to polygenesis, all these things that were being taught that, that created a line in the sand that made a us and them and, and a really a hierarchy between whites and blacks, right? So that you would call them dogs the same way that Jews spoke of Gentiles, lesser in nature, and then the question, shall they be like us? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Always unequivocally, yes. Those outsiders, whoever you view as lesser or as far from God as they come, they will be like us. They are us. All of us at one point were outsiders. 
on this whole gospel thing. At least I was. I'm a, I'm a, a bacon barbecue growing up eating Gentile, right? I did not grow up in Jewish culture. I was an outsider that's been invited in, right? Thank God his posture is, yes, they will become like us. The outsider will be invited in. You know, in Romans 1.16, when Paul says the gospel saves everyone who believes, first Jew, then Gentile, he's really humbling both groups of people, reminding both groups that they rely on God's grace, not their own merit, not their own culture. Like Paul speaks to the Gentile later in Romans, the Gentiles about this analogy of being grafted into the tree, that the roots aren't reliant on them, they're reliant on the root, right? The covenant God made with Abraham, the covenant he made with his people, that's what supports the Gentile. But he also tells the Jews through this that salvation, the gospel plan, the good news, it's not your own, and God gives it to whomever he wants to give it to. And the words then to the Gentile would have been just as offensive and shocking to the Jews as first to the Jew would have been to the Gentile. Both sides would have been shocked. Both sides would have been humbled and had to humble themselves because neither side, based on merit, had access to the grace of God. Neither side, based on, on, on merit, they needed mercy. So who you see is an opponent. Who you see is those dogs. Maybe those words are strong. You wouldn't use those words. Maybe who you see when you look down from your high horse or the them to your us, God sees as a target for his mercy. God sees as a recipient of his grace. God sees that they shall be like us, covered in grace, covered in love, and covered in mercy. You know, if I could have Tara and the worship team come up, the gospel is shocking, right? It reminds us that we're about as close to God's holiness as dogs are to humans, right, in terms of species. But you know what? Grace is just as shocking because it's for everyone. As it says in Romans 1.16, Everyone who believes. The bad news is shocking, but the good news is just as shocking, right? That the church, that relationship with Jesus, it's a place for outsiders. It's a place for outcasts. It's a place for the broken, for those that drink too much, fail at their job, care too little, gossip about neighbors, assume the worst, waver in your belief, disappoint those you love, right? Those who feel broken. That's a taste of the bad news. But taste and see how good the good news of Jesus Christ is. Tonight as we worship, tonight as we're reminded of Jesus and the work of Jesus, let's be reminded of just how good his grace is. Embrace grace. Memorize mercy. And I don't use memorize just for alliteration because it goes with mercy. No, memorize mercy. Memorize the grace of God that's offered to you, the scripture that speaks to it. Because the lie that the enemy would use is he'd take Romans 1.16 and kind of just make everyone fade to the background and emphasize the insiders and outsiders. Right? He'll make you feel like an outsider. He'll point to the bad news. He'll point to the fact that we're broken. But my favorite part of this woman's story is that she realizes her state, the fact she's broken, the fact, yeah, I am a sinner, right? I need mercy. That doesn't eliminate God's grace. That's why she persists in spite of it. She doesn't cut herself off from Jesus' grace. She humbly persists. She shows us that God's grace is bigger. God's grace is always better. But if the enemy can't make us feel like outsiders by loading us with shame, he'll, he'll make us feel like insiders by loading us with pride. Puts the saddle on our high horse and then invites us up onto it. But this episode is also all about crossing boundaries. The boundary lines that we make in the sand all the time of us and them. Jesus flips that on its head. It's it's us for them. You know, shall they, those people over there, be like us? 
God's desire is always yes. God's heart is always yes. That his grace would cross boundaries, his grace would cross lines in the sand that we subscribe to, and it would reach the people that need it. Those people are his targets for grace, love, and mercy. And Jesus, we thank you tonight that you never send anyone away empty except those who are full of themselves. So tonight we humble ourselves. God, we return to worship to put you in your proper place. Jesus, you came, you emptied yourself. You didn't see equality with God as something to be used to your own advantage. You humbled yourself, taking on flesh, becoming man, so that you could be obedient to a cross. But now God has elevated you to the highest place, right? Name above every name so that every knee would bow humbly and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Tonight we do that in our worship. If we could stand, we're going to go back into worship and Terry's going to lead us in worship. But tonight if you need prayer, maybe you're feeling like an outsider. Maybe you realize you've been living like an insider. Or maybe you just need anything dealt with to bring it before the Spirit and to bring it before the cross. We say it all the time, it's okay to not be okay, let's just not stay that way. There's grace and there's mercy so that we can not wait to change before we come to Jesus, but so we can come to Jesus and be changed. So as we worship tonight, if you pray for anything, I'm here, Tyler and Emily are there, but let's sing and glorify Jesus and humble ourselves in worship and seek his face. Yeah. 